Well, good morning. Good to be here, isn't it? So my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC. It's good to have you here if you're new. Uh, we certainly welcome you here. Uh, we just finished a season, a season of time in the book of Ephesians, and now we're entering into uh, the spring, and we are doing a series beginning at today called What's Your Story? And, uh, and I really think it's birthed out as something that we have as kind of a mantra here at LEFC. Now, mantra coming out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, which says that, you know, we are not only going to share the gospel with you, but we're going to also share our lives with you as well. And so in that spirit, we want to help us all discover that, you know, God isn't done working. It's not just collected in time into a book uh, from that we know as the scriptures. No, it's an ongoing work of Christ that we are doing. And so this series, to just kind of paint a picture, I have a friend that I work regularly with here uh, in the area, and he has said this many times, that the story of God changing your life or the story of another uh, how God is changing their life can be the most powerful means by which we introduce the gospel to someone who does not know Jesus. Our story or other stories as we share them can be that little prick, that pinprick that says there's, some, there's a God out there and he is going to change your life if you begin to seek him. And so as we go through the series, my desire is that you will gain more confidence because I'm, I'm guessing that for some of you, telling your story might be difficult. If you were to have a son or daughter, if you're a parent, and you had a son or daughter that, or granddaughter or grandson that is younger, and they got up in your lap and they asked you, tell me a story about Jesus changing your life. How would you respond? What would be your answer? Would you just say, there, there, Jesus is good? Point to a Bible story? Or how about that friend, whether you're a parent or not? Maybe you have a friend that looks at your life and they say, why is your religion so important to you? What would be your response? My guess is that many of you would feel confident in sharing scripture because you have confidence in Scripture. But would you be, have confidence in sharing, well, Jesus has changed me, and here's how he's done that. My guess is that some of you feel insecure about your own personal story and journey with Christ because it lacks what you might think as any kind of inspirational moment or any kind of dramatic episode that you can highlight. You know, some of us have not gone into the the, the deep crevices of the darknesses of society and they've been drawn out by this, this superhero called Jesus and then we share that testimony as if that's the only kind of testimony that truly changes lives. The reality is, is that God's changing all kinds of lives. And many of us struggle with sharing that story because sometimes we put ourselves and our story in a box and we feel no courage, no confidence that God has indeed changed you. Or maybe others have put you in a box and it's held true over you that you have a difficult time coming out of the box that maybe people project upon you. Perhaps this series will be that reminder and to connect the dots between who you've become and who Jesus is and his story and how his story interrelates with your story. It's my prayer that, again, as we have said regularly, we pray for revival here. We pray that a fresh anointing of God's Spirit come upon us, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world, that it needs Jesus more than ever. And so would you join me in praying now as we dedicate these next few weeks to that end? Father God, I anticipate this series. I know what lies ahead in it. I've not spoken to many things that will happen. But Lord, I believe there is much to be learned here. And there's much to be gained. 
because the reason why you have not returned as of yet is because you desire more to be in your kingdom. You haven't returned yet because you're waiting for us to become more holy. You haven't returned because you want more to be in your kingdom. And you've chosen us, the church, to be the ambassadors of that good news. So Lord, would you use these next few weeks to connect the dots between our stories and yours and then give us the courage and the awareness to be able to use that story to your glory so that others can know about Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. If you have the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, you can go there, go to events. You'll find LEFC on there, tap on there, and it'll give you uh, the text for this morning. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. And, uh, and I want to just kind of draw out this idea that, okay, I already postured the idea of what if a, a child got into your lap and, tell, and asked you to tell a story of how Jesus has changed you. Or if a friend asked you why your religion is so important to you, how would you respond? But what if Jesus was the one that was your audience and you were to ask him, what's your story? Would Jesus begin when asking, what's your story? Would he begin with eternity? Who he and the Father and the Holy Spirit who have always existed and infinite begin to talk about what it was infinitely like before they created the earth. Could you imagine that conversation? So Jesus starts talking about their golf game that began like a thousand years before and they finally finished the 18th hole after they decide, you know, we've done this long enough. I mean, it's a very mind-blowing idea that God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always were. There is no beginning. So if you ask Jesus, what's your story? Him being one with the Father, being God, the firstborn of all creation, through him things were created. That's a, you probably should sharpen this question just a little bit. You wouldn't have time for him to talk about eternity. But what if he began with the creation narrative? Would he begin in day one of Genesis? What it was like to begin to form that which is going to house a people, a human being that's going to be just like him? Or would he begin with his own human story about being born in such a crazy way, yet being God? Like, so you're God, you've created human beings. What was it like while you were an infant? Were you thinking about things in a divine way while you were an infant? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he's God, right? So what's an infant thinking that's God? Then he starts speaking his first words. What was his first words? You have any idea? I don't. I'd like to think that it wasn't Mary. Or that maybe it was Father. Or is don't touch that or I'll hurt you. We don't know. I mean, it's fascinating to think this divine child grows up, has first words like everybody else, deals with all the same humiliating things that an infant goes through, having their diapers changed, learning to eat natural, the, the food through your mouth, and then learning also to walk, having to do all those humble things, and yet having a divine awareness. How about the moment when he's just before he's about to become a teenager, and he goes into the temple, and for the first time gets to read that which he wrote before others. It says that the, the rabbis were amazed by him, but they didn't realize the very source of that written word was this young boy reading to you. That would be a crazy story to hear from Jesus' perspective. Or what was it like, Jesus, growing up in the household with your brothers and Joseph and Mary? Did your brothers resent the fact that your birth seemed to be more celebrated? Well, quite a bit more celebrated. And theirs was with no fanfare, no gifts brought from people from afar. 
did his brothers struggle with envy? When they were maybe beat up on him a little bit, did he perform any divine response? You know, they were able to shut the mouths of lions. What did he do to his brothers, right? I mean, think about this. Well, then what about when he's finally out and known? That happened at his baptism. When he went into the water, anybody that might have known him would have known him as, well, that's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. His father is Joseph. He's a carpenter. Mother was Mary. Has some brothers. He's been working with his dad. I think they're from the tribe of Judah. I mean, just basic information. But when Jesus came out of the water, that's the one who God says is his son. That is the one who we saw the image of the Holy Spirit, the dove come upon him, which we know was for the Hebrews, the symbol of God. So they knew without a doubt whose voice was talking when, when God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Then how would Jesus tell the story when he went out from that baptism out into the desert and actually fasted for all those days and then had an encounter with Satan? Handling those temptations. What was it like to now be in human form and encounter the spiritual being that's been accusing human beings for centuries and now he's come to you to accuse you? What was that like, Jesus? And then when you left that wilderness and you came into the region of Galilee and to Capernaum or Cana and you began to teach from the word that came from you as the living word. What was it like to look into the eyes of those you created while you're reading that which you knew came from you? What was it like? What, what, what did you see in the faces of people when you performed those first miracles? How did they respond? You knew the very thoughts of their heart. You could see that they were amazed, but at the same time struggled with doubt in what they're seeing. But I think where it really takes on an interesting turn of events is that after having healed several people, even after having taught so powerfully and authoritatively to people around the region of Galilee, Jesus now comes home for the first time since he has been revealed as the Messiah, the Son of God. What was it like, Jesus, when you went home? Let's begin in the text in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. We'll capture this moment and understand it a little bit from a human side of, of this that maybe we've never considered before. But verse 14, Jesus has returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit from being out in the desert, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. Let me pause there. Look at this maybe from the lens of those who grew up around Jesus in Nazareth or were Nazareth uh, citizens. They've been hearing word of Jesus, this boy that they had known throughout his entire life. They've been hearing rumors that he was going into synagogues around the Sea of Galilee and teaching and creating quite a stir by the power and authority by which he was teaching. Jesus? Jesus is doing this? So that is going on in their minds. And now rumor has it that he has actually come back to Nazareth. And he's entering into town. So you can imagine if they've been hearing the rumors of all that's happened around Galilee. And Nazareth's not too far. It's, it's, not, it's a pretty long day's journey. But you can get there pretty quickly from the Sea of Galilee. But it's not a part of the Galilean Valley. 
So they're hearing all these rumors about the, their homeboy that had grown up in their town. And now he's come back in. So you can imagine people are curious about Jesus who they've known since he was a child. I mean, think about it. Many of these people had held Jesus as an infant. When he was infant, they had changed his diapers. Some of them had played with him as young children. Some of them had gone to school with him. Some of them were his teachers. Some of them had disciplined him, possibly, in the sense of, you've got to abide by our rules. Because he was, a, again, a perfect child. He hadn't sinned. But there's still direction that is offered. All these people in Nazareth have their particular memories of Jesus that they have to hold, that they have to connect from their memories of him growing up in Nazareth to what they're now hearing about him from the Sea of Galilee in that region. So they're hearing these rumors of his powerful teaching, but they're also hearing the rumors about his miracles. They had heard that he had turned water into wine. Jesus, having control over elements, the things that we see, can touch, ingest, he turned water into wine? Uh, I don't buy that. They, those people that have shared that story, they drank too much of it. But then they were hearing that he had healed people of diseases. That's a little bit more difficult to explain away because people had the diseases and they were then healed and they were going around telling people about having been healed. And those people knew that they had had that disease. And clearly now they do not. And they're giving the glory to this person named Jesus. Those rumors are coming back to his hometown. Then they hear these crazy stories like the one where Jesus actually healed somebody from afar. A man had a sick child and, and came to Jesus and said, my child's back in my home sick. And Jesus tells him he, is healed, he will be healed. The man goes back to his home to find that his son was indeed healed and discovered it was at the exact moment that Jesus had spoken it. You think that story was kept quiet? No. These rumors had reached Nazareth. But the people in Nazareth had to deal with what they knew about Jesus from before. They had to get over what they had experienced with them before. I have a question for you. How many of you grew up in the Lancaster County area? All right. How many of you would say that there are people in this county that knew who you used to be and you're no longer that person? How many would say, there is a memory that a lot of people have of me, and I'm no longer that person? If we were to show the 16-year-old view of you to this congregation this morning, and we were to get reports about who you were as a 16-year-old, what would the story be? Right? I mean, I love the fact that I, I'm a transplant. I'm not from here. But I've lived here long enough to, know, to appreciate the culture of this area and this region. And there are many godly saints. One of them is my good friend Greg Heise. He's sitting over here to my right, not paying attention. He's bending over getting a drink. <laughs> and I can tell you this man is a good man. But there are people, and I can say this freely, I know him only as a godly man. But I'm sure that if I was to go and interview those who knew him, as a teenager, or as a young man, we wouldn't get the same stories we know now, right? Do I hear an amen from you, Greg? Amen. We would all be ashamed if our story of our lives were replayed from when we were younger. And so when you go back to home, or if you live near home like many of you, because a good number of you said, yeah, I'm pretty much here where I grew up. When you go be around your family or when you're around the friends you grew up with, 
you know in their mind that they have memory of who you used to be. And sometimes they've never accepted who you've become. For those of you that are transplants like me, or maybe you're just visiting from somewhere else today, whenever you get around people that you have not been around for a long time, but they know the old you, and they don't know the new you, it's difficult to go back and feel confidence in who you are now because you know those who knew you before don't see you that way. You feel me on that? It's not easy going back home or being around those who have known you since you were young and trying to project upon them you're not who you used to be. And when you're a person who has been transformed by Christ, Christ has been changing you every day, and that transformational work that Jesus has been doing upon you has been going on for years, and then you go back and you become, get among those who knew you when you were not walking with Jesus, it's not an easy transition to go from where you are right now to back to where you used to be and be among them. Jesus was doing ministry He was casting out demons. He was healing those who were sick. He was teaching with power and authority. None of those things were the experience of those who lived in Nazareth. None of them. So he enters back into town. People are curious why it is that their ears are hearing these stories about somebody that they know such a different narrative about. It's not that Jesus, because again, Jesus was living perfectly through those years, but they still knew him as just a carpenter's boy. Let's go on in the text and and see how this plays out. So I stopped there in the middle of, of verse 16 when he says he stood up to read. And then it says in verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let me stop there for a brief moment. So let me tell you about the practice of a synagogue. When they would come on the Sabbath day to experience the readings of Scripture, they would go to the first five books, the books of Moses or the books of the law, and they would have an assigned reading annually to where they could get through all of those books. And so they would go and they would hear significant amounts of text read from out of those first five books. And then there would be assigned readings in addition to that from out of the prophets. And those prophetic books would include books like Isaiah. So what would happen is the minister, the one assigned to leading this service or gathering, would then choose somebody to read. Just to let you know, we do this at LEFC. Every Saturday on the Sabbath day, there is a reading time. We call them Sabbath readings at 4 o'clock. And it's so beneficial to my heart and my my ears when I'm able to be there and to hear from these assigned readings. And we follow the same Hebrew patterns of reading. So this is happening here. Now what's happening with the minister is that the readings then are done by those he hands the scroll to. So he knows what the assigned reading is. And then he takes that scroll from out of the box and then he applies it to the, gives it to the person that's going to read. Now, Jesus is in the room, and everybody's heard about the fact he's been teaching powerfully around the area. So, of course, of course, the minister is like, I'm going to make sure that Jesus reads today. Because once you are handed the scroll, you stand up, you go to the podium, you read, then you unroll it, I mean, roll it back up, hand it to the minister, you sit down, and then you speak. So Jesus stands up after being handed the scroll of Isaiah. And you need to know that this particular text he read is actually a messianic text. It's speaking of that which is to come. 
It's found in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2. He does not finish verse 2. At the end of verse 2, he says, it says in, in Isaiah that it's then to communicate the day of the Lord's vision. Uh, sorry, it's the day of the Lord's vigence. Why am I not saying that right? It's close. All right, getting there. But where does he stop? He stops with proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So vengeance is coming for a day. That's going to happen at his second com coming. But in this case, he is on his first coming, and it's the year of the Lord's favor. So he says to them, after reading this, today, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Look what Isaiah 61 says. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. So he's saying, the spirit of the Lord is on him who just read it. His anointing is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has also sent me, the one that just read this to you, to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. He has also assigned for me that I'm going to offer recovery of sight for the blind, which they've already heard rumors to that. And then to hear more than anything, the oppressed, which includes all the nation of Israel, because they were under the oppression of Rome, that the oppressed will be set free. So people hear this. When it says in verse 20, it says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then he says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him. All spoke well of him. And were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Keep in mind, they had heard what was going on in Jesus' life after he'd left Nazareth. But now he's back, and they're wondering what this is all about that he's been teaching so powerfully and authoritatively, casting out demons, healing the sick, doing all kinds of things that they would have never thought their ears could hear or their eyes could see. And now this person is right before him, and you can't get past. You know him. This is not the person that you knew all his life. Which is why it ends verse 22. After they had all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now think about this. Everybody in the room has just heard God read his word back to them. I can't imagine what that must have sounded like, what that must have felt like, that the author himself, the divine author himself is reading to you. I mean, we all have these, and most of us have, these apps that are Bible scriptures that you can have it read to you while you're driving. And then you get to choose what voice sometimes it's read in. So some of you choose some English dude's voice with a great accent to read the Bible to you. If I could choose anybody to read the scriptures back to me, I would choose James Earl Jones. My favorite voice that I've ever heard. Some of you are going to have to Google James Earl Jones. That's okay. <laughs> then you're going to realize, oh, I know who James Earl Jones is. But we want to hear scripture read in that voice that is just so melodic or just has that deep baritone voice. And we want to hear it so that it, we can receive it all the more. But in this case, it was God himself. It was God himself reading the scriptures and they're hearing it. So of course, they say, they were all in approval after he finished reading. We just received something spoken graciously. And what does grace mean? It's receiving a gift that we didn't earn or deserve. And so even in their mind, the way they would describe it is like, we were just blessed by the way Jesus read the scriptures to us. We received a gift today. But wait, hold on a moment. This is Jesus. We know Jesus. This can't be possible. If you go into the Matthew account, Matthew chapter 4, or you go into Mark chapter 1, and you'll see these, this account retold from a different perspective, it's pretty instantaneous that not only did they feel like they were blessed and given a grace by the reading of Jesus, they also felt immediate disdain and shock that Jesus would teach in that way because he's Joseph's son. The caste system would say that the, the carpenter is not one of authority. 
doesn't have the right to speak with authority over us. But yet Jesus just did this. How does Jesus respond to this moment? Continuing on in verse 23. After they had said, isn't this Joseph's son? And they're beginning to have doubt. Jesus says this, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. And there was a severe famine throughout the land. And Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Seraphath, in the region of Sidon. And then there were many in Israel with leprosy during the time of Elisha. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of town. He took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he, Jesus, walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus pulled a divine crowd-surfing moment, carrying him up here. That's usually in our culture. Maybe not some of you. But I've been at concerts where that's a good thing. Somebody's being held up above a crowd, and they're pushing him along in the crowd. In this case, they're carrying him to the edge of a cliff to kill him. And Jesus just does a backstroke. And leaves without their knowledge. It's a divine moment. I would love to see it in person. But I'm not, that's not the point in this lesson. Jesus, just because of the box people had him in, people were not going to receive him. Even though he is now different in the way he is operating here on this earth. Jesus spoke the truth in his hometown, but it was not received. He even says, you know, I, you're going to quote this, pro, this proverb to me that a physician, you got to heal yourself. Do, do the show. Do the show that, of what you've been doing elsewhere. Then maybe we'll believe. I'm reminded of the Luke 16 passage when Jesus says, you know, even if I was to call somebody out of the grave and cause them to resurrect from the dead, people won't necessarily believe. So the show that they were saying that, you know, in their minds thinking, Jesus, if you just show us that you're not the guy we grew up with, we'll believe. Jesus knows the show is not going to change their heart. But he continues to speak as to who he is. But he brings an analogy that angers them. He talks about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was in a situation where God told him that there's going to be three and a half years of famine. And Elijah was able to prophesy that because of the evilness of the northern kingdom of Israel. And as a result, that famine came. And when he needed help, because the famine was great that even he was struggling for food, God sent him to a widow's house to care for him. But none of the widows of Israel were the heroes or the ones blessed. It was a Sidonian woman that cared for Elijah and ultimately was blessed. And then his successor, Elisha, when he came, and there was great power upon the prophet Elisha. And he was going around and, yes, performing miracles. But only one time was a leper healed. And leprosy was very common ailment at that time. And none of the Israelites, none of the Jews, none of the Hebrews that had leprosy were healed. But a Syrian was Jesus, in your hometown, do the show. Maybe we'll believe. And Jesus says, my kingdom is way beyond, way beyond my hometown. I'm going to take this to the Gentile as well. They were so angry and furious that they were willing to kill him. It's the first time that Jesus is under threat for his life. And it's his hometown. People 
that had dressed him when he was younger, people that had raised him, people that had taught him, people he went to school with, were the ones that were first threatening to kill him. It says that they took him to the edge of a hill. That's Mount Precipice that uh, Nazareth sits on. And every city, the old village in, in Israel sits up on a hill for its own defense. And Nazareth is up on this real quick bluff. And it's very striking, its edges. And so I have a picture of looking out from Mount Precipice. What you're seeing across that valley on the far side is a ridge. That's Jezreel. If you know anything about the story of Elijah, that's where Elijah was prophesying against Jezreel because Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen, were so evil and they were leading the people away from God. Elijah was prophesying against them. Between here and that ridge that you're seeing there is the valley of Megiddo. You know what that's about? It's where the battle of Armageddon will be fought. So the place where they're going to throw him off the cliff is literally the place where Elijah prophesied all that he prophesied. And yet the future destruction of mankind will happen here. And that's where the anger is being shown. The next picture is me being on Mount Carmel. I'm actually now behind me is Mount Precipice. And you're seeing another portion of the Valley of Megiddo. You see, all of this, Mount Carmel was where God brought fire down from heaven at the request of Elijah, right? Elisha also worked the same valley. So these stories are so prevalent in the history of Nazareth that when Jesus compared their denial of receiving of the blessing to saying that it had gone to a Sidonian or a Syrian, they were offended and rage was the result. But we need to be clear about this. Jesus spoke with truth and grace. It was only when they began to doubt that the issue changed, not by his tone. He did not change. He did not come into this town. He did not come into this town walking with some kind of swag saying, oh, I'm back. Hear what I've been doing? Yeah, healed a few people. You should try the wine I created. Yeah, heard about that, huh? No, he didn't come back into town that way. He came back. He, became, he was just as gentle and common as to what they had known him as. And then it was this moment that he was reading that they received the gift of grace that they realized, we've just heard a gracious reading of Scripture. It was only when they began to doubt that their hearts turned. Jesus didn't change. They did. He did not fit the box they had put him in. Sometimes you and I, God does amazing work in you, changes you, makes you different. And then you come among those that knew you as you used to be, and you don't even know how to act because you don't know if they're going to accept the new you or not. Experienced that before? Get around those you did all the things you did that are unspeakable. Get around those who, again, can bring up everything you've ever done wrong. Jesus didn't even have any of that, and yet his hometown could not get beyond his position as being just the son of a carpenter. Throw in our lives where we have dirt that people have on us, and it's difficult. I brought up the 16-year-old you. What would that be like if you put that out in front of people? What would they think of you? Well, here's a 16-year-old me. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> Mullets are back in, baby. But behind that picture, what you don't know going on in the 16-year-old me is I was depressed. I was broken. I was suicidal. And because I was hurting so deeply, I was hurting people deeply. Pastors, we, we talk about this regularly, that the most hurting of people are the most hurtful of people. So when we get involved pastorally, things get difficult. Well, I was one of those hurting people as a 16-year-old. This was the most traumatic part of my life. 
And people that were around me at that time, in particular my mother, my sister, some of my friends that I treated horribly during that time, they would have a very difficult time accepting who I am now. When I go back and become, I'm around the people that I treated poorly back then, do you think they look at me as pastor? No. They do not. Let alone do they look at me as somebody that they take advice from or want to hang out with. Maybe. But there's a lot to overcome. I have to somehow either live out the difference that I am now or I can make the decision to simply be who they've always known me to be and stay in the box. Maybe not necessarily treating them bad, but just let the narrative stay as it is. You see, I think that that's where we have a lot to gain. We have some, some issues when it comes to living out our faith and telling our story among others. So I have three questions for you. What has God done in your life that others would not know about or accept because they know too much of your old you? What has God done in your life that others would not know about or accept? Secondly, do, do those, particularly in your hometown or those you grew up among, that where you did a lot of your life that maybe you'd be embarrassed to share, do they remind you of who you used to be and would not accept you as to who you become? My last question is this. Do you let the box of your past hem you in and keep you from sharing the story of what God has done and is doing in your life? Because sometimes people are willing to pull you, let you be out of the box. But sometimes you want to embrace the box. You're too, you're lacking courage to live out the new you among those who knew the old you. What I've learned to be true is that every human being that I have met, whether they grew up in the church or not, wants to, something they, could, they can hold on to that is filled with hope. And the way that they best see hope is that when somebody speaks of something, but also when somebody lives of something that suggests there is something that centers them and offers hope. You see, God had people living around you and I when we were at those low moments of our lives or maybe just in those bad moments of our lives that somebody who is in a better place spoke something or lived something that provoked us to think there's something greater than what I'm living for. And then we began to search for it. And when Jesus is the source of your transformation, why would you not want to share why you are the way you are or live out that which has changed you? Not letting the boxes of the past define you or hold you back. People need to see hope. And that hope is often evidenced most by seeing a life transformed by Christ, by word and deed. Would you stand, please? We're going to declare that the hope that we have, it is alive, it is living. When Jesus physically left the earth, he's, he didn't say, I'm leaving you an instruction manual that you'll be able to figure out how it applies to your everyday. He said, I'm sending you a counselor, a comforter, this hope that we hold on to, it is alive and it is active. So church, let's sing of this hope. Let's declare that it is moving and among us still. Let's tell our story. Desperation, 
After this moment, Jesus goes on to do his ministry in a region nearby, Samaria, uh, comes into his 
purview. And, and a moment happens between him and a woman at the well who did not have the greatest of reputations. Let's just put it that way. And, she, and this is what happened after the encounter with Jesus. Many of the Samaritans from that town, her town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. That's what I'm talking about, is that there is a work of God that he does in you. And then you have a choice. Are you going to live that out, or are you going to stay under the box that is there? That woman had the opportunity to just stay under the reputation she had and let that be just a very private, personal encounter with Jesus. But instead, she goes back to her town. She tells them, you've got to meet this man who has changed my life, told me everything I ever did. And as a result, salvation came to the town of the Samaritans. Unfortunately, it didn't come to the Nazareth people, at least that day. But Jesus went on to Samaria and saw this happen. And I think a lot of it has to do with whose hearts come ready and open. And are you willing then to live out the new you, who you are in Jesus? If you'd like to talk to someone uh, about this encounter with Jesus, we have an encounter room. It's over here to my left. There would be people in there who'd be glad to pray with you, talk to you about Jesus, or maybe just carry a burden uh, that they can be there to pray with you. Regardless whether you came in here knowing Jesus or not, you need to know Jesus changes lives. He changes lives. The worst of us to the not so worst of us. But he changes lives. And so if we humble ourselves, come to him, he promises to make that change in you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that word, I send you out in peace, but live lives of hope so that others can see. Amen. You're dismissed.